So throughout, the, uh, throughout most of U.S. history, probably not to anyone's surprise, the divorce rate in the United States has been steadily uh, increasing. Uh, for example, <clears throat> from 1867 to 1879, the annual divorce rate in the United States, I was really quite surprised by this fact, was 0.3 divorces for every 1,000 Americans. So we're not talking percentages. For every 1,000 Americans who lived in the United States during those years, there was, on average, 0.3 divorces, so not even one. For the rest of that century, the annual rate increased to 0.7 by the end of the 1800s, 0.7 divorces for every 1,000 Americans living in the United States. So there was a time when our country took marriage seriously. Of course, as we would expect, as we get into the, the roaring 20s, the divorce rate climbed to 1.7 divorces for every 1,000 Americans living in the United States. And then in the 1940s, get to the 1940s, the annual divorce rate reached 3.4 divorces for every 1,000. So we see it just gradually going up and up and up. In the 1970, the annual rate rose to 3.5 for every 1,000. But by the end of that decade, by 1979, the divorce rate had reached its highest, which is 5.1 divorces for every 1,000 Americans living in the United States. In the 1980s, however, interestingly enough, the divorce rate begins to decline in the 1980s. You wonder, what gives? The 1980s, really? I don't remember a revival happening in the 1980s. So that by 1989, it had dropped down to 4.7 for every 1,000 Americans. And then from 1990, so you get to the end of 1989, it's dropped down to 4.7. And then from 1990 to 2021, the divorce rate drops from 4.7 down to 2.5 for every 1,000. That is the lowest that it has been since the 1940s. Drops all the way down to 2.5 by the year 2021. Now, ordinarily, you would think this is a good thing, right? The divorce rate is dropping. Finally, the church is making an impact on the culture. We should be celebrating. But wait. This is until you realize that the number of unmarried partners living together in the United States has nearly tripled over the last two decades. Tripled. Over the last two decades, we've gone from 6 million people living together out of wedlock to 17 million. And this is back in 2021. No telling where the number is today. And so the divorce rate is decreasing, but that is only because fewer and fewer people are getting married. They're just choosing to live together. And now you would think, while you would think, 
that the idea of cohabitating together outside of wedlock is an obvious sin or should be an obvious sin for most Christians, maybe not your baby Christians, but for most Christians that should be an obvious sin to avoid. According to the Barna Research Group, in 2016, so again, this is uh, seven years ago, In 2016, 41% of practicing evangelicals in the United States thought that cohabitating together before marriage was fine. 41, that's nearly half of all professing, practicing evangelicals. That is, these are individuals who said they go to church on a regular basis, on a weekly basis. They are members of a church. 41%. So the problem is with the churches. But more specifically, I believe, if we're going to lay the blame right where it actually belongs, the problem is that too many preaching pastors are failing to preach and teach a biblical view of marriage. Too many people behind the pulpit want to preach what is popular and what is going to grow the church rather than simply preaching and teaching a biblical view of marriage. Thus, in this, our final sermon on marriage and divorce and singleness and human sexuality, I know a lot of parents are going, finally I can leave the earplugs at home for my kids. On our final message this morning, I want to present a summary of the biblical view of marriage. So we are going to exegete the text, these two verses, but I want to use this as an opportunity to sort of summarize all that we've looked at, much of what we've looked at in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and just sort of review the major points because I think it is critically important that Christians have a biblical view of marriage and divorce and remarriage. And so I'm going to do that this morning from our text in four points. My old homiletics professor would be very pleased with me. Four points. Point number one is this. Marriage is designed to be between one biological man and one biological woman for a lifetime. You know, it is... It's tragic that I have to add the word biological, but you have to nowadays because I want to be very clear about what I'm saying. And I am getting that first point from the first half of verse 39. There, Scripture says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Now, when Paul says that, he's not just saying that, he's not saying that the husband isn't bound to the wife as long as she lives. It works both ways. Paul just simply doesn't feel like he has to keep saying it in both directions in order for you to understand what he's saying because he has already made that clear, right? If we look back at verse 10, there he's very clear. To the married I give this charge, the wife should not separate from her husband. And then verse 11, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So he's made it very clear already, right, that it works in both directions. You're bound to each other. He simply doesn't say it that way. But a wife or a husband is bound to their spouse 
for as long as their spouse lives. It is a lifelong covenant commitment between two people, a male and a female. And we get that from all kinds of texts. There are so many texts we could go to in the Bible, but I think the most obvious one and the one that everyone should start with is at the beginning in Genesis chapter 2. There in verse 26, Scripture says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man or mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God begins with one man and one woman. That is how marriage was intended. He begins with one couple, one man and one woman, not one man and multiple women. He did not give Adam a harem, i.e. monogamy is what is intended for marriage. He also doesn't simply populate the earth with human beings like he does with birds or fish or cattle. He makes one man and one woman. The message would have been very clear that it is just you and me, Eve. It is just you and me, Adam. This is how God intended marriage. This is how God designed it. And they clearly got that message because for the rest of their life, they were only ever married to one person. For 900 years, they were married to one person. If there was ever anyone who should have wrote a book on marriage, it was Adam, right? How did you stay married for 900 years? I think his answer would have been because that's just how God designed it. He gave me one wife, and that was it. There was never any thought of doing something different. Adam and Eve clearly got the point. One man, one woman, not two males, not two females. The reason God starts with one male and one female is pretty obvious, and it's stated in verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You need one male and one female in order to fulfill that creation ordinance. So I often tell Christians who are becoming discouraged about the very aggressive LGBTQ, LMNOP movement, it keeps getting longer. They get discouraged about their aggressive agenda, and I just say, look, if this continues in the same direction that it's going, and at some point Christians are simply going to outpopulate the LGBT movement because they cannot reproduce. Who knows, maybe the post-millennials are right, and this is how Christians are going to dominate the world. We will simply outpopulate the unbelieving world. But it is so obvious that even the world's most famous atheist gets it. I listened to, uh, or read, rather, an interview just uh, about a week or two ago with Richard Dawkins. 
Many of you know who Richard Dawkins is, probably the world's most famous atheist. He was the liberal poster child for decades. Now he's being um, canceled, right? Cancel culture. He's being canceled by many on the left. Why? Because Richard Dawkins has said the idea that there are multiple genders is absolutely ludicrous. It is a simple scientific fact that there is male and female. There is only two. This is a man who does not believe that God exists, but he's looking at the science. The message was clear to the human race. This is God's design for marriage. One man, one woman in covenant relationship for a lifetime. It is for this reason that God says in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, I hate divorce, says the Lord. Let that land on you for a moment. There are very few instances in the Bible where God uses that kind of strong language. I hate something. This is one of them. I hate divorce, God says. Now, that's the, re- the rendering of the New American Standard Bible, which I think is accurate. The ESV puts that in a footnote. God hates divorce because, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, quote, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Moses allowed that. And you think, well, wait a minute, wasn't God speaking to Moses? Moses writes that in Deuteronomy, just giving you the context here. Deuteronomy is very different from the other four books of the Pentateuch. Because Genesis, to the middle of Numbers, is all God revealing this to Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai. But beginning in the middle of Numbers, they move on, and Deuteronomy is a collection of three sermons where Moses is giving the people instruction before they go into the land of Israel. Moses allows them to divorce. Now, that's not to say that he was wrong, and Jesus is not saying that. Moses is a prophet. Deuteronomy is God's word. What Jesus wants them to understand is that Moses allowed it, obviously, with God's sovereign permission, Moses allowed it, but from the beginning, this was never intended to be. Divorce is an aberration of the created order. Adam and Eve were intended to remain married forever. Death is an aberration of the created order. Their marriage comes to an end because of death and sin. Sin not only kills people, sin kills marriages. Divorce is an aberration of the created order because marriage was and is designed to be a lifelong covenant commitment between a man and a woman. This is because marriage is designed by God to do two things. We've already talked about these before, but I want to review. Marriage is designed by God to do two things. Number one, it is designed to reflect the triune relationship within the Godhead. We know from Scripture that within the Godhead, the Father determines the plan of redemption, and the Son carries out the plan of redemption. The Father's the one who gives direction to the Son, to Jesus Christ. 
He gives him the instructions of what to do. The son carries out those directives from the father. We get that from many simple statements that Jesus makes, but I'll give you one. In John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus there says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish all his works. So Jesus says, what I am here to do is not my own will. I am here to carry out the plan and the directives of the Father. He's told me what to do, and I am going to do it. And Jesus always perfectly submitted to the will of God the Father. We're also told from Scripture that the Holy Spirit acts as the helper, the helpmate, if you will, for Christ and for the church, which is the body of Christ. For example, in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, we're told that the Holy Spirit carried Jesus into the wilderness. The underlying Greek word for carry there can also mean to support or to encourage or to uplift. The idea is that as Jesus was going into the wilderness to do battle with the devil, he knew it was going to be a daunting task. The Holy Spirit was there encouraging him, carrying him along and saying, you can do this. The Holy Spirit was always Jesus's biggest cheerleader. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus tells the Pharisees who accuse him of performing miracles by the power of Satan that he performs his miracles by and through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that enables him to perform miracles. He is the strength that lies behind Christ. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, we're told there that Jesus was only able to offer up himself as a sacrifice to go through with the crucifixion because of the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, as he's going through that entire ordeal, an ordeal that we're going to look more closely at next Friday during our Good Friday evening service, as Jesus was going through that entire ordeal, as he is being beaten and flogged and whipped, as he is carrying his cross uphill to Calvary, the Holy Spirit was the one person who did not abandon him. He was there with him every step of the way, encouraging him, strengthening him, saying, you can do this. And in John chapter 14, verse 16, and also verse 26, also John chapter 15, verse 26, we're told there that it is not just God the Father who sends the Holy Spirit after the ascension of Christ, but Jesus says, I will also send the Holy Spirit to be your helper. In other words, the Holy Spirit submits to the will of Christ. The Holy Spirit submits to the will of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the helper for Christ. The Holy Spirit is the helper for the church, which is the body of Christ. Thus, marriage is designed to reflect the triune relationship within the Godhead. The Father gives the directives to the Son. The Son carries out those directives, and the Holy Spirit acts as the helper for the Son to carry out the directives of God the Father. In a biblical marriage, God provides the direction and the directives to the husband. 
namely from Genesis chapter 2, to protect and cultivate the marriage. That are, those are the directives given to the man. Not Eve. Eve wasn't created yet. The directives to the man is to protect and cultivate everything within the garden, and then he brings Eve into the picture. His job is to cultivate his bride. Emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and physically. And to protect her as well. And the wife acts as the helper to the husband. God gives the directives to the husband and the wife acts as the helper to the husband. The second reality that marriage is designed to reflect is the relationship between Christ and his bride. We see that most clearly. Ephesians chapter 5, that classic text that most people go to when talking about marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24, Scripture says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, meaning in the same way as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In other words... The role of wives within a marriage is to reflect the behavior of the church toward Christ. Wives are to be a physical and visible example to the world and to the church that this is how the church is to respond to Christ. And to what extent should the church submit to the authority of Christ? In everything, right? We submit to the authority of Christ in all things. And so scripture says, just as the church submits to Christ, that is in the same way, to the same extent, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. But then scripture goes on to say, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Christ love the church? Sacrificially. He was willing to lay down his life for his bride. Husbands should be willing to sacrifice their time, their energy, their resources, their sleep if necessary to love their wives in the same way and to the same extent that Christ loves the church ever patient, ever merciful, ever kind, ever gentle, ever understanding, ever forgiving. He goes on to say that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ loves the church to the extent that he cleanses her with the washing of the word. He sanctifies her. He cultivates her spiritually. He nourishes her. That is what husbands are to be doing with their 
lives. It is their biblical duty and responsibility to protect and cultivate their wives and their families. And God will hold husbands responsible as to whether they do or do not fulfill that duty. Marriage is a solemn covenant between a husband and a wife. In fact, we read that God, one of the reasons that God gives Israel over to their surrounding enemies to be punished is because of their low view of marriage. Because they disregarded the sanctity of marriage, and for that reason, one of several, God punishes the nation of Israel. I'm getting that from Malachi chapter 2. I just cited chapter, verse 16, right? I hate divorce, says the Lord. We're all familiar with that. Very few are familiar with the context with which God says that. Why does God say that in Malachi 2.16? Listen to Malachi 2. 13 and 14 leading up to 16. And this second thing you do, this is God speaking, the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand, but you say, why does he not? In other words, the Israelites are weeping and they're groaning over the fact that they're offering sacrifices to God and they're praying to God, but God doesn't seem to be answering their prayers. He's not listening. The enemies are attacking us. We're being destroyed as a nation. Where is God? Why does God not respond to our offerings, our prayers? Listen to what God says. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. The implication seems to be that the Israelites in their older years were divorcing their older wives for younger ones. And they were being faithless to their bride. And God says, for that reason, I am not going to respond to your offerings and your sacrifices or your prayers or your pleas for help. I think it's very likely that Malachi chapter 2 is exactly what Peter had in mind when he wrote 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Listen, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's the same idea. It's the same principle. Peter is saying that if you are not going to love your wife as Christ loves the church, sacrificially protecting her, cultivating her, if you're not going to love your wife in the way that God commands you to love your wife, do not be shocked when God does not hear your prayers. Because he didn't hear the prayers of the Israelites for the same reason. He's not going to hear yours. And so Peter says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, understanding your wife, knowing her limitations, being patient with her, merciful with her, in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. 
the weaker vessel. That's not a popular statement today, is it? Because I'm going to say something that is politically incorrect, but I don't really care. And that's it. Men and women are different. I don't care what anybody says. Men and women are wired differently, and they are built differently. Now, that is not to say that they are less intelligent or that they are less valuable to God. Men and women equally created in the image of God. But God designed them differently on purpose. In other words, yes, wives are to be the helpmate for their husbands, but men, listen, your wife is to be your helper in the way that a surgical tech helps a surgeon. Giving him the right tools, dabbing his forehead, knowing enough about what he's doing to say, whoa, 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 I don't think you want to cut that. Oh, gee, thanks for catching that. I'm glad you do reading. The wife should be a helpmate to her, her husband in the way that a surgical tech is a helper to the surgeon, not a helper in the way that an offensive lineman is to the quarterback. Do you get my point? Husbands and wives are wired differently. They are designed differently. They are built differently. And Peter says we need to understand that. We need to recognize that, and we need to live with them in an understanding way. Point number two, God allows very few exceptions for ending marriage or for remarriage. God allows very few exceptions for ending a marriage or for remarriage. And I'm getting that from the second half of verse 39 in our text. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So God recognizes the breaking of the marriage covenant and thus the freedom to remarry on three grounds, and only three, only three. The first is death. That's what Paul is talking about here. If the spouse dies, the marriage covenant is dissolved at that point, and you are free to remarry. Paul says a similar thing in Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So death, according to Paul, breaks the marriage covenant because, here's the reason, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, in the afterlife, Believers are like the angels who neither marry nor are given in marriage. So when one dies, the one who dies goes on into a life where they will never remarry, at least not another mere mortal. And the one who's left behind then is free to remarry someone else. The second reason that God allows for divorce or for remarriage, I should put it that way, death is not a divorce. The second reason God allows for remarriage, I should say, is for the biblical reason, or the, the biblical reason for divorcing, 
one of two biblical reasons for divorcing, and that is abandonment. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 7, uh, 15. Paul says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Notice he says, if the unbelieving partner separates. Right? So abandonment doesn't apply to the believing partner. Right? The believing partner can't say, you know what, I'm going to abandon you so that I can divorce you, and then it's biblical. Right? It doesn't work that way because the instructions to the believing spouse is very clear, and I've already read them, verse 10 and 11, to the married I give this charge, the wife should not separate from her husband. Verse 11, and if the husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. But in verse 15, if you're married to an unbelieving, a believer, and the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, is not bound to that marriage. God has called you to peace. So if the unbelieving partner says, I'm done. I want out. I want a divorce. Scripture says you may grant them that, and that dissolves the marriage covenant. But it has to be something they desire to do, right? Don't give in to this lie, this false teaching that is very popular in a lot of churches that says, well, if one spouse is being unkind to the other, is being cruel to the other, is being dishonest and hiding things from the other, is engaging in some sort of abusive behavior, well, they have emotionally abandoned the marriage, so now I can divorce them. That is not what Scripture says. That's not what Paul is talking about. Look at verse 12. If a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So regardless of how much of an ogre he may be, if at the end of the day he says, I don't want a divorce, I want to stay married, Scripture says you're bound to that marriage. You are bound to that marriage. Abandonment means the unbeliever verbally communicates, I want out of this relationship. And then, if that happens, they are free to remarry. The third grounds for biblical divorce is sexual unfaithfulness. And I'm choosing my words carefully. Not marital unfaithfulness, but sexual unfaithfulness. We get that from a variety of passages. In fact, this is discussed by Christ in all four synoptic gospels. We read that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, Matthew 19, 9, Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, and Luke chapter 16, verse 18. We won't look at all of those, but I want to look at at least one, Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. There Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife, uh, or it was also said, it was also said, he's citing from Deuteronomy Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
Now, the Greek word behind the two words, sexual immorality, is a very clear Greek word. There is no debate among Greek scholars as to what this word means. It's found all over extra-biblical Greek literature and classic literature. It is the Greek word porneia that lies behind those two words. And according to the standard Greek lexicon known as BDAG, which stands for uh, Bauer, Danker, Art, and Gingrich, that is, that's like the Webster's Dictionary of Greek scholars. According to, the, uh, to BDAG, the word porneia is defined this way, and this is how it's used in Greek literature. Porneia means unlawful sexual intercourse. For example, prostitution, unchastity, or fornication. That is what the word means. Thus, Jesus makes clear that unless one divorces for this reason, for actual, physical, sexual unfaithfulness, that unless one divorces for this reason, when they remarry, their second marriage is an act of adultery. When they say, I do, in that second marriage, it is an act of adultery if the first marriage was not dissolved for biblical reasons. Death, abandonment, or fornication, sexual immorality. Now, I want to just interject something very quickly here. Uh, In a a room full of uh, converted unbelievers, right, who have been brought into the kingdom of God, we all have differing pasts. Understand that if that describes your past, that is not the unpardonable sin. There is an abundance of grace and mercy at the cross, and all those who are in Christ are a new creation. But Jesus makes this quite clear, that only on the ground of sexual immorality, and of course Paul, an apostle of Christ, adds a second ground, and that is abandonment. But it is for this reason, it is for this reason that Paul uses such strong language. To the married, I give this charge. I command you, he says, the wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. If you separate without biblical reasons, according to Paul... Right? Let's read both together, all all together. I I skipped over the middle part. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So what Paul is saying is that if you separate from your spouse without biblical reasons, you only have two options. One, stay single for the rest of your life, or at least until your former spouse dies. Number two, be reconciled to your former spouse. Those are your only options. Without that, if you remarry someone else, your second marriage is an act of adultery. Now, I know that this can be a lot to take in, and there are a lot of uh, Christians who struggle with this. Um, You know, there's only those three reasons to get out of a marriage? I mean, are you kidding me? Well, now you understand why in Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus talked about that you could only get divorced on the basis of pornea, sexual immorality, do you remember the disciples' response? Well, if that is the case with marriage, it's better just not to get married. 
course, for Peter, he's thinking, man, that ship has sailed. I'm already married. But the disciples thought, we're just going to stay single. Because they understood from Moses that you could get divorced for all kinds of reasons. Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. Only on the ground of sexual immorality can you divorce your spouse. Understand that God makes it difficult to, to leave a marriage due to the very high importance and the sacredness of marriage. Because making it easy, making it easy to disregard a marriage, to get out of a marriage, cheapens the institution of marriage. It cheapens the institution of marriage. And I know you agree with me because I'll give you an example. It is for this reason the founding fathers made it very difficult to remove a sitting president. They made it very easy to become president, right? Be above the age of 35, be a natural-born citizen, and get enough votes. And we've gotten some doozy of presidents because of that, right? It's not that hard to become president. You just want to work at it. But it is very difficult to remove a sitting president. We have brought, the Congress has brought forth articles of impeachment in our nation's history three times, and we've never removed a sitting president. It is nearly impossible. They did that on purpose because if they made it easy, they knew if, they may, if we make it easy to remove a president from office at the drop of a hat for any willy-nilly of a reason, it cheapens the office of the presidency because it gives the impression that if you could remove him so easily, then he must not be very significant. He must not be very important. It must not be that important of an office if you could just remove him at the drop of a hat. So they made it difficult to remove a sitting president. God makes it difficult to get out of a marriage because he doesn't want to cheapen it. God has a very high, lofty, sacred view of marriage. For that reason, he makes it difficult to get out of one. Now, you may be a person who is thinking, or maybe you've been there, or maybe you are there. I've met people like this. I mean, what, what are you saying? What if I'm married to someone who's just horrible to me? I mean, what if, what, if the, what if my spouse is just, they're unkind, and they're cruel, and they seem to always do the thing on purpose that displeases me? Whatever makes me unhappy, that seems to be what they do, and they never want to do the things that make me happy, and they just seem to be against me at every drop of the hat. I mean, what are you saying? Well, now you know what Jesus feels like in regards to the church. Because isn't that the kind of bride we often are as Christians? So often we live our lives our way. We read in the Bible what God commands us to do, and we shut it, and we say, God, I'm going to live my life my way, and then I'll ask for forgiveness later. We so often, on purpose, we do those things which we know are displeasing to Christ, our husband. And amazingly, every time we do that and we come back to Christ asking for forgiveness, Christ, our husband, always forgives. He's always merciful. He's always patient. He's ever faithful. 
point number three. I'll be done in just a few minutes here. Point number three, marriage and remarriage may only be in the Lord. Right? Look at verse uh, 40. Yet in my judgment, oh, no, I'm sorry, the end of verse 39, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Paul will talk about that later on in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll just read to you these texts real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 uh, to 15, he says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Biel? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? All rhetorical questions with an obvious answer. None. These things don't go together. If you're a believer, you are the temple of God. You're part of the temple of God. There, You have nothing in agreement or in common with the unbelieving world. For this reason, Scripture makes it clear that believers, those who are in Christ, may only marry those who are in Christ. But that is the only restriction that God gives. In other words, when we talk about what, what are the restrictions when I'm going to get married, the answer is simply this, between believers, according to biblical standards, that is one man and one woman in covenant relationship for a lifetime, that's it. In other words, there is no room for racial or cultural prejudice. When it comes to marriage, the only thing God cares about is that a believer marries a believer. You can marry anyone you want within the covenant community of God. In the Old Testament, Israelites could marry anybody they wanted as long as that person was within the Israelite covenant community. You can marry anyone you want within the new covenant community of God. Economic differences, cultural differences, ethnic differences do not matter a hill of beans to God. We are all one body. We are all members of one people, one covenant community. Point number four. After marriage ends, it is better to remain single. Verse 40. Paul has to throw this in here one last time. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. Right? Paul, that's, he's really on that, isn't he? He has said that multiple times now. We've seen that in verses 7 and 8, verses 26 and 27, verses 32 to 35, verses 37 to 38. Right? Paul just thinks, look, it's just better to stay. Now, he doesn't command it. Right? He doesn't command it, but he strongly recommends it. That if you've never been married, Paul strongly recommends stay single. But if, if you burn with passion, then get married. But now he's saying here that if your spouse dies, in his opinion, stay single. Don't seek to get remarried. And then in verse 40, he says, Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. What does he mean by that? Well, this is simply Paul's humble way of saying this isn't just any person's opinion. 
In other words, Paul has been clear. He's not commanding singleness. He's not commanding that if you divorce or your spouse dies that you cannot get remarried. But he is strongly encouraging singleness as a possible lifestyle to consider. And what Paul is saying in, at the end of verse 40 is even though I'm not commanding this, he's saying, look, understand, this is not just the opinion of any ordinary Joe Stuffy. Right? This is an apostle giving his strong recommendation. So what he's saying is take this seriously and don't just write it off. But in the end, in the end, marriage is a glorious institution created by God and is an amazing blessing. It really is. But marriage must be entered into and lived with the seriousness with which it was created. It must be entered into and lived out with the weightiness, the sacredness with which God intended for the institution of marriage. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us to humble ourselves before your word. I know that in this day and age, even within the church, much of what I have discussed this morning is difficult um, for some to receive. But Lord, we pray that you would ever enable us to, to interpret our logic and our experience and our emotions and our traditions. Help us to interpret these things in light of Scripture and never the vice versa. In the end, Lord God, we pray that you would enable us to know you rightly and that those of us who are married would seek to, to, uh, to focus on their marriage, to be committed to their marriage in a way that brings you great glory and honor as we reflect to the world the triune relationship within the Godhead and as we reflect to the world that beautiful relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's name.